As you can see, the uh, reading is from Zephaniah chapter 3, 946, page 946 in the Church Bible. We're going to read from verse 9 to the end, and I think it's just worth pointing out that up to this point in time, the message has been pretty dire and pretty gloomy. Indeed, the last sentence of the preceding verse says, The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. We move now on to a message of hope and encouragement uh, to finish this, uh, this book. Zephaniah 3, verse 9. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you at that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Amen. Monday afternoon, the plane carrying England's football team back from Euro 2012 touched down at Luton Airport. Six policemen had been drafted in to deal with the crowds, but they didn't have much to do. Sadly, no one was there to welcome them home. And, of course, they surprised us with a victory in the uh, quarterfinals, the semifinals, the finals even. The homecoming would have been very different. Homecomings can be very emotional moments. It's quite fascinating if you're ever at an airport waiting for somebody to arrive, just to sort of have a look at the other people there, see those come through see the welcome they receive, and just sort of work out, um, are they people that are visiting, are they people that have been away and are coming back and receiving a welcome back? Uh, just how warm is that welcome? How pleased are people to see them? I think the time I was most pleased to be home was uh, after we'd been travelling for a while, and um, I picked up an illness in India, and um, by the time I'd arranged a flight home, I'd lost two and a half stone, and uh, arrived back at Heathrow, where my parents were there to to pick us up and uh, promptly take me to the hospital for tropical diseases and sort me out. 
It was great to be home, to know that you were safe, you were being cared for in familiar surroundings with people who loved you. This is the third and final sermon on Zephaniah, and it comes as a huge relief after the passages that we've been looking at so far. Passages which are focused on the, the terror of God's wrath and his judgment, interspersed with just a few glimpses of that hope which we see fully this evening. Remember back to chapter 1, those first few verses are some of the hardest in the Bible. Um, chapter 2 of verse 1 said, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And yet, by way of huge contrast, the verses at the end of Zephaniah are among the most beautiful in the Bible. They're about the Lord gathering his people, bringing them home, bringing them into his loving arms where they'll be safe and secure, where he will delight in them. He says he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is the emotion of reunion, of reconciliation, of homecoming. Just two headings this evening that um, I'm going to bring you as we focus on our eternal homecoming. First of those is God will purify his people. And secondly, God will delight in his people. First of all, God will purify his people. Having finished verse 8, as uh, Chris said, with that, that terrible promise that the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Verse 9 turns to God's salvation. Starts with God's promise, then will I purify the lips of the peoples. This doesn't mean that he will wash their mouths out with soap if they've been swearing, although that might not be such a bad idea these days. The tongue is powerful, but as we've been looking at this past week at the, at the minister's conference in London, the mouth is the overflow of the heart. It's what it's in the heart that is important. And what God is doing here is purifying the heart, because what are they doing with their lips? They're calling on the name of the Lord. God will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord. Well, you may recall the account in Acts of the day of Pentecost, and the believers were speaking in different languages, and the crowd were asking, what is going on here? And Peter stood up and he addressed the crowd and explained that what was happening was the fulfillment of the, the prophecy of Joel. And he quoted from that prophecy, and that quotation ended with these words, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes that same verse in his letter to the Romans, having said that uh, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. To call on the name of the Lord is to say, Lord, I deserve your punishment. I deserve the judgment that is coming. I am guilty as we saw acted out this morning in that courtroom drama, Grant, saying, I am guilty. But it's saying also that, have mercy on me. Save me, Lord, because I know that you love me. It is submitting in complete humility 
and dependence to the Lord. God will purify his people. He will save them. And that salvation is not just for the Jews. It is open to all peoples. It says here, those who are from beyond the rivers of Cush, as we mentioned the other week, from the lands of the south, from from Ethiopia or Egypt, down far away. God will gather his people. Back in chapter 2, the Israelites are told, if you remember, gather together, gather yourselves. But they weren't able to. And so now it is God who is doing the gathering, gathering his people. And it's a positive gathering. It's a gathering of his people who have been scattered, who have been dispersed, those who have been living amongst um, peoples who have been worshipping foreign gods, and yet who they themselves have not bowed the knee to those gods. They themselves have remained faithful to the one true God. And what all these who are being gathered have in common is that they belong to the Lord. They are those who worship the Lord. As it says here, those who will rejoice in him, who will bring him their offerings. Impure elements will be removed so that a righteous remnant remains. The remnant of Israel, remember what we said last week, the the remnant is not about being a cast off, a leftover It's about being privileged. The remnant will be purified. Verse 13 says, The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. Not only will they not allow lies to come from their lips, they will not have the deceit within their hearts. It's an amazing description. It begs the question, well, how can there be anybody who will act in this way, who can do no wrong? We like to uh, jump on the, the bandwagon of pointing out the faults of others. The, the latest thing is uh, the tax dodgers. Uh, Times ran a campaign last week. I think every different, pay, every, different, every different day of the week, they were having a go at different tax dodgers. One of the most notable was uh, Jimmy Carr, the, uh, the comedian. And quite rightly so in many ways. But of course, the danger when we do jump on these bandwagons is we become blind to our own faults, to our own weaknesses. Because none of us is without fault. There is only one of whom it can truly be said, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. The same cannot be sad, sadly, of his his followers. But as his people, we are being purified. We are being transformed into his image. And this life, God is moulding us into the people that he wants us to be. And so whatever happens to us in this life, whether it is good, whether it is bad, if it helps us to make us more like him, then that is reason to praise him. We're hearing again this week about the dangerous calling it is to be a minister. Um, the things that uh, ministers go through, and yet that is all helping us to be the people God wants us to be. Uh, one of the speakers, Paul Tripp, um, was very honest about his own uh, ministry. How, as, uh, as a young, immature pastor, he, uh, he handed in his notice, said, I've had enough, I can't uh, carry on with this anymore. And uh, as everybody left the church, there was one elderly man there who just stopped him and uh, talked to him. And uh, he said to him, look, if all the immature pastors 
left the church, then how would we have any mature pastors? And um, caused him to realize that actually that was the place he needed to stay at. God is purifying us. He's ridding us of the deceit, the lies, uh, to which we're often so blind ourselves. But it won't be until we go to be with him that there will be no deceit left in our mouths. And at that time, just think of the situation where there is no deceit, no lies, no, no manipulation, but only genuineness, honesty, openness. If people are not trying to look after themselves at the expense of others, there'll be no violence, there'll be no, no wars, there'll be no need to be them. There'll be no tears, no pain of broken relationships, no disappointment at others. What an amazing place that will be. What does God need to do to get rid of the stuff in us to enable us to live lives of peace and joy? What are two things that destroy people's lives, that weigh them down until they become unbearable? One of them here is here in this passage in verse 11. It is guilt. Verse 11 says, On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. Now, maybe guilt at a small thing that uh, we've done that we cannot forgive ourselves for. It may be a serious thing for which we feel that we'll never be able to be forgiven. We have got to spend our whole lives somehow making up for it. At its extreme, guilt can lead to, to physical and mental illness. If you've seen the, the film Atonement, came out a few years ago, or read the book, there's a powerful demonstration of how the need to atone for a wrongdoing can completely destroy your life. It can consume you. There was a girl in that film who had um, destroyed her sister's life by telling a lie. Um, and she longed desperately for everything to be made right. And uh, you see her at the end of the film as an old woman, just in her imagination, just picturing what a happy ending would have been like. But sadly, that wasn't the case. When we go to be with God, we will have every last trace of guilt at our wrongdoings removed from us. It's wonderful to be a Christian, to know that you are truly forgiven, forgiven for all that you have done, forgiven for all that you will do in this life. But because we are still sinful, we cannot rid ourselves completely of the, the memory of those things we've done. And yet we are promised that one day we will not be put to shame. We are free. Verse 15, have a look down, says, The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. And that enemy is often Satan, isn't it? Reminding us of the things that we have done. Well, the other major thing that destroys people's lives is fear. Fear of other people, fear of what they might think of us, and in some parts of the world, what they might do to us. Some Christians live their lives in fear. Barely a Sunday goes by in Nigeria without um, a church being attacked and people being injured or killed. One pastor in Joss said, uh, said this, he said, I always sense the fear in the atmosphere during Sunday services, but we still don't relent. We cannot stop attending Sunday services because if we do, it means we have helped them to achieve their objective. 
God says of his people when he brings them home that no one will make them afraid. They will no longer need to live in fear. Because, verse 15, the Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. That image of hands hanging limp is an image of powerlessness, like someone who's been paralysed, somebody who's maybe had a stroke and cannot use all the parts of their body they used to. And even if we haven't had um, an illness, an accident that has physically affected us in that way, we can still feel that our hands are almost like they are limp if we have fear, if we are paralysed by fear. But God promises, verse 19, at that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather those who have been scattered. These verses provide huge encouragement of how God will look after us. He'll purify us. He'll free us from fear and guilt. But what is also immensely reassuring is that God will take delight in his people. Zephaniah calls here God's people to have a look in there, verse 14 onwards, to, to rejoice, to sing, to shout, to rejoice with all your heart. Let your whole lives praise God because of what he has done for you. Now, it's natural to be called to delight in God, but the surprise at the end of the book here is that God himself will take delight in us. On that day, God will be with you, And his presence will not be a cause of fear, but of great reassurance. Here, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. What does it say? He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. There's a combination here, isn't there, of loud rejoicing and quiet peace. A bit like um, a moment when two people who've been estranged, separated, are reconciled. There's that sense of not actually having to say much, but just to experience that joy of being back together again. Well, it's recently at um, Psalm 147. And um, you might recall how we considered that if God is already perfect, if he's already complete in himself, if he doesn't need us to complete his pleasure, and yet he still chose to create us, And when we went away from him, he still chose to redeem us. Then we must be pretty special to him. To be generous to us when he doesn't need to be, surely that is the the greatest approval that we can ever hope for. We don't need to worry about feeling insignificant. Because God has shown us here that we are of immense value to him. We are his children. We bring him pleasure in a way that nothing else he's created can do. So remember that the next time you may feel undervalued, when you may feel that nobody really loves you or is interested in you, God is. And what most delights God in us is there in verse 12. It is the meekness, the humility of those who trust in the name of the Lord. And it's the same in Psalm 147, do you remember? Um, these words, his pleasure 
is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. For us, to be able to approach God now in prayer, and one day to come into his, his presence, we need to have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has opened up the way to the Father for us, that he has taken away our punishment by taking it upon himself. That is what we'll be remembering here in the Lord's Supper this evening. But just as the Lord's Supper is not just a looking back in gratitude, it is also a a looking forward in expectation, so does this passage here fill us with great hope for the future. It ends with these blessings promised by God. Verse 20 says, At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. If you know the Old Testament book of uh, Esther, you will recall that uncle Mordecai who sat at the city gate in sackcloth and ashes. He was um, worried about the uh, the annihilation of the Jews and the episode when his enemy, Haman, is ordered by the king to, to put a robe on Mordecai, to put him on a horse, a king's horse, and lead him through the city as the one the king delights to honour. What an ironic passage that was. But it's a picture of the honour that God will give his people when he restores their fortunes on that day. He will give them all the blessings that he wanted to. All the blessings that we should receive before Satan caused us to stumble. God will bring us to live in a place where we no longer have to fight against Satan. In a place where God's reign is supreme. Where there are only those who want to worship God and bow down before him. And the question I want to leave you with uh, this evening as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper is are we looking forward to our homecoming? Are we looking forward to it? Or have we made ourselves actually a little bit too comfortable in this world so that we feel that actually this is really where we want to be? Will we be like the, the teenager being collected from a party by his parents? who doesn't really want to go, wants to stay there, who's embarrassed about his parents coming to gather him, to pick him up. Because this is about our attitude to death in many ways. Can we say, like Paul wrote to the Philippians, I desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far. But I'm prepared to stay for the benefits of helping others in their faith. When the Lord does call us one day, we shouldn't have anything to fear because we will experience blessings far superior to anything we can experience in this life. We'll be in the presence of God himself. And likewise, when we lose someone dear to us who is a believer, let's take that consolation, that huge consolation. They've gone to be in a far better place. And let's look forward to that moment when we will run into the open arms of God who will gather us in as somebody who's been waiting for us all our lives 
and is ready to delight in us. Let's pray.